This is just one of those scenes that to me is both about her inability to keep it together, attempt to be the grown-up, but also her power and her potency. I really identify with where this scene is headed, which is the explosion. When you see a woman who just cannot contain her rage, there is a kind of cinematic satisfaction in watching a character who's a little bit out of control. And... I just think it's exciting to see that kind of person on screen. Hello, and welcome to episode 7 of An Invitation to Destroyer, a limited chronological deep dive of the 2018 neo-noir Destroyer, written by Phil Hay and Matt Manfredi, and directed by Karn Kasama. I'm your host, Jim Panola. During each episode, I start by reading a scene or scenes from the original script, adapting the screenplay into an immersive audio narrative with a full cast and a brand new soundtrack, highlighting the merits of the screenplay while exploring the final cut of the film, hopefully shedding light on all of these unique components and how they fit into the greater thematic ideas of the story. This series is very much a labor of love that is completely independent and ad-free, So if you enjoy the show, please take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It allows us to reach more listeners and simply helps a great deal with visibility. If you want to go above and beyond, I have a Patreon subscription page at patreon.com slash jimpanola with no underscores, where your hard-earned dollars get you access to a wealth of bonus material, and it directly funds this podcast. Thank you so much for your consideration. Today's installment is a reading of pages 38 through 41 of the Destroyer screenplay, wherein Aaron Bell pleads with her daughter Shelby to regain control of her life. Let's begin. Exterior. Iglesia Cristo Resitado. Across the street day. Belle is parked across the street from a humble storefront church, watching. Toby's words continue uninterrupted. You're the ones who lied. You're the ones who stabbed us in the back, not the other way around. She can detect no movement. It's closed up. Belle dials Shelby. It rings and rings. No answer. No voicemail. Exterior, Iglesia Cristo Resitado. Moments later, Belle approaches the church. She notes a schedule posted on the wall. Servicios, Martes, Jueves, Sabado, 7 p.m., Domingo, 4.30 p.m. Belle's phone rings, glances at it. She picks it up. Before she can speak, a voice. Fucking what? Interior, one dollar Chinese, day. Belle sits down across from a skeptical-looking Shelby at a cheap Chinese place. Thanks for meeting me. She looks around, smiles almost imperceptibly. You know, I, I could have taken you to a nicer place. I like this place. A tense pause. Finally. Look. I don't know what to say. Maybe 
We could just start fresh, you know? Are you still drunk? No. Are you going to keep stalking me? I'm allowed to know where you are. I need to be able to find you. Why? Especially right now, I need to. That's what you need to know. Jay approaches, sliding into the booth, kissing Shelby. Hey, babe. What's up? Belle, surprised, rejects this immediately. No. I'm sorry, no. What? This is between the two of us. You owe Jay an apology, too. She stares at Belle, waiting. Jay makes himself comfortable. A thin, shit-eating grin. Finally. No. You don't think you did anything wrong? You hit me. Maybe you should go to AA or something. Well? Rage junkie and shit. Belle ignores this, keeping her eyes on her daughter. You don't think you made a mistake? We're not here to talk about me. Shelby looks over at Jay. See? Somebody else's fault, I guess. Belle moves her stare to Jay. Okay. I'd like to have a conversation with my daughter now, in private. He's not going anywhere. I don't have time to fuck around, Shelby. I think she just feels safer with me here. Are you here to see how much shit I'm willing to swallow? I can make your life really difficult. Jay sinks into the booth, insolent. Belle looks at Shelby. I need you to pull it together. I need you to be home at Ethan's every night. Get your ass back in school. Right. What else do you need? Jay lets out a hiss. This is bullshit. Belle erupts, slamming the table. Stay the fuck out of this! People turn. Shelby pushes Jay out of the booth and is up. Shelby! Belle reaches for her, is shrugged off violently. Shelby is already outside. Gone. Belle knows she's blind. Fuck! was mostly raised by my mother. I suspect that even if my father hadn't died in a car accident in my youth, I still would have been. He was the breadwinner for the first nine years of my life, my age when he died, and often wouldn't return home until after sunset. Meanwhile, mom would drop me and my siblings off at the bus stop, pick us up from it, cook meals, and steer us away from the TV to do homework while Che Panola was at work. Pretty standard stuff. But I'm no only child. I have three other siblings. I'm not a West Coast kid. I was born and raised in hilly, woodland, forested northern New Jersey. And I'm not, nor was I ever, a teenage girl. But none of those are prerequisites for understanding how fraught and difficult mother-child relationships can be. I take pride in and feel thankful for my good relationship with my mom. Not to mention how consistent it's been throughout my life. A piece of my heart chips and breaks when I hear stories of parents who didn't regularly say I love you to their kids. There are many love languages, of course, yes, and verbal ways of expressing it are just one, but it's a classic for a reason, and we all deserve that kind of explicit affirmation. Life is hard enough as is. All of which is to say that even when things are good, and I believe in my marrow that my dad's death brought my family and I closer together and made us stronger, imperfection may still be the most universal aspect 
of parent-child relations. Maybe because mistakes are one of the best ways to learn, which is an understatement for Aaron and Shelby's dynamic and so many others that it reflects in real life. Echoing Bell's scene previously with Toby, the somewhat heightened nature of the exchange between the two generations of Bells that we see today seems to foreground the point of the scene, which is Bell's almost oxymoronic parenting technique. I need you to be in Ethan's house every night. I need you to pull it together and get your ass back into school. The trope of kids calling out their parents' hypocrisy, whether it has to do with curfews, drug use, or anything else, is a well-worn one. Look no further than Shelby's first words to her mom when they sit down together. Are you still drunk? Yet, I'd argue this template takes on a new and worthwhile meaning when an essential tenet or pillar of the narrative isn't just that the parent has made the same mistakes, and much worse, as their offspring, but that they got away with it. And that's why Bell's offer to Shelby at what is apparently the oldest Chinese restaurant in Los Angeles, according to Karn Kasama, isn't so much a plea to avoid the same mistakes as it is a warning to consider the cost of impunity. Shelby is doing whatever she wants. The guidance and rules set by Bell, ex-husband Ethan, and whatever high school Shelby is supposed to be attending are mere suggestions to the troubled teen. Make no mistake, Shelby is fucking up and her mom is not happy about it. And indeed, the younger Belle is anything but beyond saving. Though I'd argue that the elder Belle is less concerned with punishing her only child, less concerned with starting over or salvaging their relationship, and far more concerned with the isolation that Shelby's lack of boundaries and consequences will engender. Belle knows what happens when those two things aren't accounted for, because she's a living, if dilapidated, monument to the effects of their absence. Aaron Bell, especially as a hostile specter of a mother, is too late to intercept a creep boyfriend, underage drinking, and general insolence. In fact, she may be so resigned in her attempts to change or help Shelby that her main intention in even meeting with her during this scene is to establish her daughter's geographic whereabouts. Her emotional ones aren't an option right now especially with Jay hovering around like a petulant, greasy-haired UFO. But there's no such thing as an unexpressed emotion. While Aaron and Shelby's ability to communicate is undoubtedly in ruins, the authenticity of their mutual resentment is thriving. It's barely contained as evidenced by Belle's second rageful explosion at Jay so far. Belle obviously hates her daughter's boyfriend, but that hatred is only a fraction of the actual contents of the shrapnel she's spraying. The outburst he sparks is only the surface trigger of 17 years of self-loathing that's been building up, which furthers the schism, resets the pattern between the two generations of bells. This caustic divide between knowing how we feel but refusing to convey it, or knowing how to convey it, can be a devastating chemical mixture that is more gradually and insidiously destructive than we likely know or realize at first glance. I went to visit a former friend during the release of an invitation to the invitation. I drove about 90 minutes from my hometown in New Jersey to see them 
It was a lot of fun. But on the day I was scheduled to leave during a walk around the neighborhood, this person criticized how commemoratory, or rather, how uncritical my podcast was. I'll be completely forthright in saying I was deeply hurt. Still am. In fairness, it was an extremely valid thing to say. And to paraphrase a popular adage of director Christopher McQuarrie, the only hurtful criticisms are the true ones. The comment stung because there was more than an ounce of truth to it, but also because it came from a close friend, and also because it felt tactless. In my defense, I think I was pretty upfront in stating that the podcast was meant as a signal boost for and a celebration of the movie, of the invitation. But I can distinctly remember, distinctly recall, desperately wanting nothing more than to hop in the car that I came in and drive away immediately when it became clear what I was hearing. It almost felt like a trap, like I was being cornered during what was otherwise a genuinely good trip. Maybe I've buried the lead here a bit, because what might be the most indelible little scar of the whole interaction was that it was unsolicited feedback. Strangely, I also have a vivid memory of not wanting to bring up the podcast during my two-day stay. I'm not sure why, but I can guess that the personal nature of the project, not to mention the fact that it was still in the middle of its release schedule, made it feel like a particularly vulnerable and tender subject. It was, it is, such a me-centric thing that I feared discussing it unnecessarily would just come off as arrogant. I fear that right now. Despite that unfortunate moment, it was still a highly enjoyable visit. Yet, in the immediate months prior, and in those that would follow, I noticed more passive-aggressive behavior from this person. Not a lot, but enough. I would find out months later in what I can only describe as a long and incensed breakup email that this friend had resented me for a plethora of reasons and for a long time, including for how difficult they felt it was to even get me to come visit them for the exact trip I just described, among similar complaints. It was a shock, but more in the literal sense than in terms of surprise. My bodily reaction to the letter was visceral and painful over the next few days. But between long and cathartic conversations with other equally close friends and trusted friends who reassured me, I began to recover. I mention this not to make myself the hero or the victim of this story because I'm neither, but to demonstrate the poison of letting a supposedly unexpressed emotion fester. Because it will not remain unexpressed. It will likely reveal itself in new, sharper, and more lethal ways. Believe me, I'm writing and saying this to myself as a necessary reminder on the dry erase board of my own mind, more than I'm saying it from a place of enlightenment. Avoiding temporary discomfort can transform that same itch into prolonged pain or even interpersonal decimation, leaving floating embers and terrestrial ruins in the wake. Which begs the question, what am I going to make in the ashes? Maybe you're saying to yourself, who cares? Why does any of this matter? It matters because anyone generous enough to give this bizarre experimental follow-up to an invitation to the invitation a chance should know that I'm here, I'm doing this, because I'm in Destroyer's Corner, 
That's obvious, but I'd like to think I made my mission pretty clear in the pilot. But I'm also the least helpful person in assessing that. Regardless, it bears repeating, bears emphasizing. This was never about claiming Destroyer is flawless or perfect. Flawless and perfect are boring. As I've argued before, flaws big and small are a source of our cinephilia, not something we merely accept despite them. I'll likely die on this dumb hill before this series is over. Moreover, this is about engaging with a piece of art and storytelling in a way that hasn't had this exact format applied to it, namely recreating and adapting this script into an alternate medium and doing an exhaustive chronological breakdown of that same story. But why? The easy answer is that I'm a fan of the material. Great. We knew that. But the more honest answer is I'm doing it to see where it takes me. Creatively, emotionally, spiritually. Anywhere. As long as it's interesting and as long as it extends Destroyer's lifespan. I have no issue admitting that much of this is a selfish exercise in lengthening and deepening a conversation with others, especially those smarter and more qualified than me, so I can better articulate my own love of the film. And maybe, maybe even do that to the people listening right now, for people like yourself. As film critic Walter Chaw says, quote, Reviews, good ones, are two things. One, more revealing of the reviewer than the film. Two, the beginning of a conversation, not the end of one. End quote. While I don't consider an invitation to Destroyer a review necessarily, at least not in any traditional sense, Chaw's point stands, and it stands as aspirational. If I can help facilitate a layered, long-term discussion of this young but impactful film, then I'll have achieved an important goal. However, Chaw's statement occurs as hierarchical, and his first point is more vital to me than the second. If power reveals, as journalist and biographer Robert Caro once wrote, so too do our individual reactions to stories. They reveal our emotional and experiential bifocals. They become the vessel for the specifics of those lenses to convey and invite universality, almost paradoxically as a result. Having a loose grip on the outcome of this series is one thing that enables this approach. Having a firm but mutable structure enables this as well. And having an awareness around the fact that if I don't get this out of my body, out of my head and my heart, who knows what damage it might do left unchecked, unsaid, unexamined, to myself and to others. I'd hate to find out that there's no such thing as an unexpressed podcast. An Invitation to Destroyer is written, produced, and hosted by me, Jim Panola, and stars Eileen Anglin as Aaron Bell. Original score is by John Panola. Graphic design is by Joseph Panola. Additional artwork by Logan Riley and Piper Schauber. And executive producer is John Panola. Our featured actors this episode are Allison Shay Reed as Shelby, John Conklin as Toby, and Adam LeCang as Jay. Follow us on Twitter at an invitation, no underscores, and follow us on Instagram at invitation to invitation. 
That's invitation, the number two, invitation, with no underscores. Special thanks to Phil Hay, Matt Manfredi, and Karin Kasama. And thank you for listening. Don't forget to rate and review an Invitation to Destroyer on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It's a small action that makes a big difference. Similarly, please spread the word if you enjoyed this episode, and tell a friend about the show who you think might like it. And once more, I have a Patreon subscription page at patreon.com slash jimpanola. For just a few dollars a month, you can get a wealth of written and audio bonus content that includes, but is not limited to, early access, exclusive extended cuts, as well as the official companion podcast titled Ellipsis, where I chat about the movie with some very special guests and fans. Link is in the show notes. And on that note, extra special shout out to a few of my very generous Patreon patrons, Rupa Dasgupta, Joseph Panola, John Panola, and Jane Panola. I love you guys. You're all amazing. So once more, thank you. Until next time.